And there's all sorts of different issues that we can be divided around. And maybe if you have been here for the last few weeks, you're like, well, what about this one? Or how come we haven't talked about this one? I, I don't like people that believe this. Can we talk about that one? Maybe you've got all sorts of things that you like to divide around. And there are a lot of different issues. And as Christians, it can be hard to think through these things because we do want to say, what does God say? We want to stand faithfully on his word, not just what does the culture around us say? What do our friends say? What does the news say? What does our political party say? We want to know what does God say about these things? We want to know that. And at the same time, we don't want to know only what to think, but we want to know how do we live? How do we engage? It's one thing to have kind of a a biblical position on something, but it's another thing to have a biblical heart around things and say, how do we love people? How do we engage? Both of those things matter. We want to know what God says, and we want to know what God's heart is. Both of those things matter. And as Christians, we want to be able to think clearly around things. We sometimes live in this tension of wanting to not hide our beliefs, to want to be courageous, to want to be bold, but also the tension of not wanting to be thought crazy, not wanting to be disliked, wanting to be compassionate to people, and we want to learn to walk in both of those things. And so we bring everything to God. We bring our hearts to God. We bring our minds to God. We bring our lives to God, and we say, God, we want you to speak into all of this. And this series is just kind of one drop in the bucket of trying to help us grow in those ways. It's not everything. There's so many things that we could talk about around all of these different topics, but we're trying to build a foundation to be able to think and feel and live clearly around all of these things. And today, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite topic, politics. That's what we're going to speak about. And I know sometimes people say, don't bring up religion or politics, you know, at the dinner table. or the, the, Those are like the two things you don't talk about. And religion's okay in church, but not politics. But today, we're going to talk about politics. And... It's kind of beginning to be, it'll, we're on like the upward ramp season of that. As debates start to happen with the various political parties, as the election looms near, as Thanksgiving and crazy uncles looms near, all of that stuff is coming close, right? And we have to say, man, what, what does God speak into this? How does God invite us to be shaped by his word around politics. And I don't know how you feel about politics. I don't know if that word triggers you, if you kind of freak out as you hear that word. Like, I don't, I don't know how you feel. You might kind of feel like this. We don't approve of political jokes. We've seen too many get elected. That might be kind of your posture. <laughs> I, there were so many great political jokes. I was like, I could spend 20 minutes just doing that, but I'm not looking to break another record. So I don't know how you feel. You might hate it, right? Just hate politics. You might just kind of ignore it, not think about it at all. Some of you might be really passionate about it. It might be something you really care about. You might be heavily involved. It might be something that is a a deep concern and passion for you. And we know politics can be deeply divisive, right? It can be very divisive. It can be something we totally avoid, not to kill a relationship or destroy a conversation. It can be something that has hurt relationships and churches, and it it can be deeply divisive. And there's a lot that we could say. There's a whole kind of school of theology called political theology, a whole branch of theology to think through. So there's a lot that could be said about this, and truly we are scratching 
the surface. But we want to say, how do we think? How do we live? How do we relate to one another knowing that we might be divided on certain aspects of this? How do we bring our relationships and our minds and our hearts and our lives to God around these things? And so, as with many of these sermons, there's going to be just kind of some foundational building block points that I want to give to you on what the Bible says. And the first, in some ways, is quite simple. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And sorry, the, uh, the large projector is not working uh, this morning. I believe um, it was the Republicans that ruined it, or, or the Democrats, whoever you don't like. I'm just, I'm just making that up, just so more you know, fuel for the fire. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus is Lord. That's the first that's the first thing. Remember there was like a meme for a while that was like, thanks Obama, about every, anything that went wrong. Maybe you didn't see that. You're like, oh, why did you say that name in church? <clears throat> okay, sorry. Um, <clears throat> so, Jesus is Lord. Now, here's what Romans 10 says. And I, again, I could point you to so many places in the Bible, but I just want to give you a handful of verses on each of these things. But it says, this is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. This is the most basic Christian confession. Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the most basic Christian confession. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, you might think that that term, Jesus is Lord, is a religious statement to say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. A lot of times people say something like that. And it's true, it is a religious statement. But into the context that this was written in Rome 2,000 years ago, this was also a very political statement to say Jesus is Lord. Because people in the Roman Empire were supposed to confess Caesar is Lord. That is what they were to confess. And Rome was one of the most progressive, uh, polytheistic cultures that you could ever imagine. They were extremely tolerant. You can have as many religious beliefs as you want. You can worship whoever you want. You can kind of practice in whatever sort of weird spiritual ceremonies that you want. You can do pretty much anything, but you do have to say, Caesar is Lord. And everyone was fine with that, except for, well, the Jewish people were not fine with it, but they kind of got an allowance, and the Christians were not fine with it, which was very unique. The Jewish people, being an ethnic group, it was kind of like, uh, they're weird. We'll let them kind of do what they want. But Christians compromised people from all sorts of different ethnic groups and all sorts of different economic statuses. And, and so it was not allowed for them to hold to a strict belief that would say, I cannot confess that Caesar is Lord. I cannot say that. I cannot practice that. I cannot give honor to Caesar in that way. Only Jesus is Lord. So this is a religious confession, but written in this context was also very much so a political confession to say, this is who our true king is. We cannot, with every other citizen, just say, we pledge allegiance to Caesar. We can't do that. Jesus is Lord. And there were costs to that for the Christians. There was cost to that. And I'll tell you this, if you live today as if Jesus is Lord in your life and will not allow any other political authority to take the place of Lord, there will most likely be costs 
for you. Jesus is Lord is not just a personal religious devotion. It is to say he is above everything else in my life. All my decisions, all of my living are presented before him and subject to him above anyone and anything else. means every framework of how we discern various things. Should I do this? Should I think this? Has to be subject to Jesus is Lord. He is the one that decides. He is the one that leads and rules. Jesus is Lord. It's also good news to say Jesus is Lord. Because if Jesus is Lord, what that means is even though there are other political leaders and other authorities and other empires and other things in place in our country and around the world, to know that Jesus is Lord is good news because it means he is the one that's actually in charge. It means he is the one that is actually above it all. It means the one that is the supreme ruler of the universe is good and loving and gracious and kind and powerful and wise. Jesus is Lord. That's where we must start. But second, God establishes government. God establishes government. Probably one of the most key passages in the Bible around how Christians are to think about government, politics, is, and it's worth reading at length, but is Romans 13. Here is what this says. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. God establishes government. No authority exists. It's not from God. The authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's commands. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a tear to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good. And you will have its approval, for it is God's servant. And this word servant is the same word where we get the word for the church office of deacon, saying that the government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason, for it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes. Tolls to those you owe tolls. Respect to those you owe respect. And honor to those you owe honor. God establishes government. Now that might shock you. I don't know how you feel about the government. I don't know how you feel about even the phrase that God establishes government. That might be very different from how you have thought about the government. But God created the government. God establishes the authorities as his servants. God establishes government. You might say, why? To frustrate you. That's why. To make arguments in your family. Not really. God establishes government. And in this passage, it gives some of the reasons why. For order, for good, for justice. If you were here last week, we talked about justice. God establishes the government to promote good, to restrain wickedness. 
for the good ordering of society. And there's always been a variety of different kinds of government. The Bible doesn't spell out that monarchy is the way or that democracy is the way. There's always been different kinds of government in different nations and some that are more or less moral. When this was written in the Roman government, there was some good leadership in the Roman government. There was a lot of good that the Roman government did. They made roads and aqueducts and all that stuff that you studied back in middle school, right? They did all that stuff. It was good stuff, but it was also corrupt. It was, have you seen Gladiator? It was bad, right? There's things that aren't good, and they persecuted Christians. And yet, Paul says, God establishes the government. It's for his, it's his servant. So if that is true of a government that was actually very anti-Christian, it is also true of us. God establishes government. He works through it to promote good, restrain evil, to bring justice, to bring goodness, to bring order into society. It's a way that God, listen, God is a God, we know certain things about God, right? You know that God's a God of order, that God is in control of all things, that he's loving, that he cares for people, he's a God of justice. There's things that we know about God, but those are not just attributes of God where he's just kind of sitting on his throne being like, I am really good and a God of justice, but doesn't do anything. God practically cares for the world, and so he establishes various things to bring about what he cares about and who he is. So he says, I love people. I care for people. I want the restraining of wickedness and the promotion of good and order and justice. And so I establish government to be my servant towards that end. God cares and practically brings his effects into the world. So God establishes government, which leads us to the next principle, which is that we are called to be good citizens. We're called to be good citizens. If God establishes government, then we, how we view ourselves as a part of whatever country, whatever state, whatever society that we find ourselves in, we are called to be good citizens. God is the one that establishes the government. We should not be people that are working in opposition to that. We are called to be good citizens. The Christian ethic is not to ignore government or what it means to be a citizen or politics. It's not to ignore that. Or just to think that the Christian ethic is anarchy, only Jesus is Lord, so forget all this. That's not the Christian ethic. The Christian ethic, because we understand that God establishes government, is to be good citizens. Which, back to Romans, says, submit to the governing authorities. It means that the base level responsibility that we have to the government is to obey. We don't just drive around running through stop signs and running through light, red lights saying, Jesus is Lord. We don't do that, right? We submit to the governing authorities, knowing God establishes government. God establishes government. And so over and over and over again, pretty much every time that the Bible speaks about our relationship to the political authorities, it's we are to obey them. We are to submit to them. We are to honor them, even as specific as you must, well, let me start back here. Do what is good. That's part of being a citizen, that we live good lives. Submit, not just because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. So don't just submit because you don't want to get a speeding ticket. Don't just submit because you don't want to get in trouble. That's a part of it. 
but also because of your conscience, meaning you are knowing who God is and that he establishes this, and out of your conscience you are obeying because it's a way that you obey God. And then even saying things like, pay your taxes. Does God care about your W-2? Does God care about your taxes? Does God care about TurboTax? Does God care about those things? Yes. Does God care about the E-40 or whatever it is, toll thing? Yes. Pay your taxes. Pay your tolls. Don't cheat in the carpool lane. Respect to those you owe respect. Honor to those that you owe honor. This is part of what it means to be a good citizen. This is why Paul spells these things out. This is the same thing it says in the book of 1 Peter. It's the same thing it says in Titus, that we are called to obey, to honor, to respect, to be good citizens. Do you see that as a Christian responsibility, to be a good citizen? Or does that feel very different of like, okay, I'm supposed to read my Bible and pray, probably not kill anybody, try not to steal things, just kind of obey the Ten Commandments, that's, there we go. Well, the Bible actually says you have a political responsibility to be a good citizen. Part of that for a Christian is also to pray. Paul says this in 1 Timothy, first of all then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good. And it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Even the way we pray. How often do we pray for our government, our political leaders? Paul says, the Bible says, Peter says, over and over again we are told that part of our Christian calling is to be good citizens. Because it's an act of worship. It's a way that we are saying, I trust God. I trust that he's good. I trust that his way is good. I trust that his establishment of things is good. It's a way, that's part of what Paul means when he talks about our conscience. It's a way that we say, I am actually obeying and honoring God. I'm thankful for the care that God sets up. I'm thankful for what he's doing around me. And so I obey, I pray, I respect, I honor, not just because of that person, but because of who God is. That's what even he just said when he says to pray. He says, this is good and it pleases God. It's a way that we actually worship God. And it's a way that we reflect God. Through our obedience and our respect and our care as good citizens, we are showing here's who God is. We're reflecting him to those around us. This is part of what it means for Christians to be salt and light where we are. This is what Peter talks about when he says to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll, they'll see your good and glorify God. And we reflect God through being good citizens. Now, number four. This is actually one of the most complex and I would say one of the most helpful. But, man, so much I could spend an hour on this one. Different spheres of authority. There are different spheres of authority. I'm going to give you a couple places in the Bible on this, and then I'll explain this. But there's different jurisdictions would be another language. There's different jurisdictions of authority that God has established. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus has a kingdom, and he's saying it's not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight 
so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, this is when he's about to be crucified, my kingdom is not from here. So there's kingdom of the world, and there's my kingdom, and they're not the same, Jesus says. Or, this is a famous passage in Luke 20, they come to Jesus and ask him this question. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But detecting their craftiness, he said to them, show me a denarius. This is a coin whose image and inscription does it have. Caesar's, they said. A coin with Caesar on the image. You can Google these coins. They still exist. Well then, he told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Different spheres of authority, Jesus says. My kingdom, the kingdom of the world. Caesar, God's. Separate things, different spheres of authority, different jurisdictions. One way to think about this, and sorry this is blurry and won't be able to see it up there, but this is from uh, Dr. Jonathan Lehman. He's a professor, author. He kind of maps this out saying this larger circle is God's things, which are eternal, perfectionistic justice as declared by churches, meaning I know that's kind of weird language, but meaning God's things are the things that are eternal things. They're the things that come from his word that are things that are, here is what God calls us to be and do and live. This is what God's word says. Caesar's things are temporal protective justice, meaning things that are restraining evil and promoting good. And it's not eternal matters. This is still considered within God's things because all is God's things. But there are different spheres of authority. There's different spheres of authority. Think about it this way. And the Bible really lays out three primary spheres of authority. There is the government, which from Romans 13, one of their key responsibilities is that they wield the sword. They have the authority to put you in jail. They have the authority to punish you. Their job is to allow good to flourish and to restrain evil. That's the sphere of the government the sword. Then there's the sphere of the family. And from a verse like Proverbs, the the tool for that is the rod, meaning I'm not saying you're required to use a rod, but just the, the idea is that you are supposed to disciple, to train, to bring up your kids, the instruction and admonition of the Lord. It's a, that's the sphere of authority in the family. It's about parents having authority to love, serve, teach, train their children. And then there's the sphere of the church, which the tool for that, Jesus says, is the keys of the kingdom, which is, again, a weird phrase, but what it means is that God allows the church to have the authority to give you instruction in matters of the gospel, God's word, salvation, the keys of the kingdom, meaning entrance into salvation, experiencing life with him, who he is. So those are kind of the three jurisdictions or three spheres and different tools, the sword, the rod, the keys, but different things that they do. Now, here's what this means. Here's why this concept is so important. First, what it means is this. There are limits that each sphere has. There's limits that each sphere has. So if the government, and since we're talking about politics, I'll mainly focus on that, but if the government is evil or is commanding evil, well, then we're not supposed to obey that because that is now telling us to go against the things of God. So there's places in the Bible where they say, we cannot listen to you. We will continue to preach because our, we are first commanded by God who he is. If the government says you must confess Caesar is Lord, you say, no, I can't do that. 
So if the government is evil, you don't follow in line with what it says to do. There's limits to its sphere. It also means in its sphere that everybody has to stay in their lane. So if the government says to you, parents, your kids need to uh, watch two hours of TV a day, you would say, you don't have a right to tell me how to parent my kids. That's not your lane. That's not your sphere. Likewise, if your child is freaking out, maybe you're trying to get them dressed and they're freaking out, you don't say, I'm calling your senator, right? It's different spheres. It's a different lane. God has told children to obey their parents, and he's told citizens to obey their government, and he's told church members to obey their pastors and leaders. But though there is different jurisdictions that they each have for the different things that they are called to do. So none of them are absolute. Everybody has to stay in their lane and follow the orders that they have been given. When my kids are 20, I don't get to tell them, here's who you vote for, right? It's a different lane from my parental authority. There's different spheres and different orders that each have, which also means when the government tries to step out of what its orders are from God, that's also not absolute, The role of the government is to restrain evil and to promote good from Romans 13 and other verses. It doesn't give them absolute totalitarian authority. They have to follow the orders that they've been given by God, just like parents have to follow the orders they've been given by God. Just like pastors have to follow the orders they've been given by God. I can't bind your conscience and tell you who to vote for. My authority comes from showing you what God's word says, not being able to tell you, all right, Parents, here's how many vegetables you have to give to your kids. Here's how many. That's, I, I don't have that authority as a pastor. So everybody has to stay in their lane and follow their orders. Likewise, the government doesn't have jurisdiction, therefore, to tell churches how to worship. If the county of Jefferson County put out a, an edict saying, here is the set list for music that's approved in churches in Jefferson County, we would say, delete. That would be our response. They have no jurisdiction to tell us how to worship. That's not their lane. Now, oftentimes, what happens is, and this is true throughout time, oftentimes what happens is some of those spheres try to take more authority than they are given by God. Parents can do that. Churches can do that. Governments can do that. Government has been given the responsibility to restrain evil, promote good. But they start to say, "Ah, I think our sphere should be this big. I think it should start to encroach upon family and church and other things in your life and more and more. And try to make that circle bigger and bigger and bigger outside of restrain evil, promote good. There's different spheres. Now, here is the truth, okay? This is where this gets complicated. There is overlap in those spheres. So I'll speak in this way because it's just generally true, though it could go the other way. If a husband is abusing his wife and tells me that as a pastor, I don't say, all right, let's just open God's word and talk about that. There's also a political sphere that now needs to be involved. The cops need to be called. So, yes, as a pastor, I can talk to you about confessing your sin. I can talk to you about what God's word says and how that's wrong. But I also need to bring in the political sphere the government. So there is overlap. 
If there's child abuse happening, is that a parental thing, a church thing, a government thing? There's overlap in those things. So now here's where this gets complicated. Just as a recent example, again, sorry to trigger you. I know I'm using that word because it's ironic, but here we go. This, again, is from Jonathan Lehman. This came out during the height of COVID. This was big debate. Church's obligation and right to gather. That's one sphere. The government's obligation to protect life. That is part of what they are called to do. Stop murdering people, restrain evil, promote good. So they have an obligation to protect life. Now, where's the overlap? And different people drew that line in different places. Does the government have the right to tell churches not to meet? For how long? What restrictions can they put? Can they tell you not to sing? Can they tell you you have to be vaccinated to come? Can they tell you you have to wear a mask? Can they put age requirements? Can they put thermometer requirements? Can they, I know, and you're like, oh, no, stop saying this, right? Does the government have the right to do that? How much right do they have to do that? Does the church have the right to say, you can't tell us how to function in that way? And we just have absolute authority. There's lawsuits that have happened around all of this stuff, right? People that have gone to jail over all of this stuff. People that have been sued over all of this stuff. So there, it, it, I'm, what I want to tell you is this. It's complicated. It's not as easy as just saying government has no right or, of course, the government has the right. Aren't we supposed to be good citizens? It's not as easy as saying either of those things. The church has a sphere of authority that has been given to it by God, and the government has a sphere of authority that has been given to it by God. And they are distinct things, but there is overlap, which should lead us to really understand both of these things, and it should lead us to try to mark out where are the boundary lines, how far do we let things go, but it should also lead us to be gracious with, I have many pastor friends that made different decisions in this place, and should lead us to be gracious, knowing, man, each, each congregation, each church is trying to be faithful to God. Each church is trying to say, man, we know that we're supposed to be faithful to God and we can't be commanded to do things against the Bible. We can't be commanded. We don't want to allow the government to go beyond what the scope is that God's given them. But at the same time, we understand that God has given government. We should have a lot of grace for people trying to figure those things out and understand that this is a gray area. And so I don't believe it's fair for churches to throw stones at one another or to command, this is the only way that a church can be faithful. And during COVID, you saw both, or at least I saw in the pastoral circles I run in, both sides doing that. You are not good citizens. You're disobeying Romans 13. How dare you go against the government? You are not good Christians. How dare you let the government tell you what to do with your church? You need Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Neither of those, I don't think, are charitable. Everybody's trying to do their best to say, how do these fears work together? And it takes work, and it takes wisdom, and it takes charity. Now, we're not in this place right now, but I do think this. Our church, and I'll take ownership for this, our church didn't have a good understanding of this. I don't think a lot of churches did, because a lot of churches didn't have to deal with this. A lot of churches haven't had to deal with this in the last century. So it is important to understand these different spheres and to have an understanding of that that isn't simplistic. There are different spheres of authority. 
Here's what this also means. It means that we are not, we are not seeking to create a theocracy because there's different spheres of authority. We understand that a theocracy is where it is God's rule over the world or over a country. That will happen one day, but we're not trying to create that. There's different spheres of authority right now that have been created. And the Bible says that Christians are exiles. We live in a country, ultimately, in a world, ultimately, that's not our home. And so we're trying to be faithful here, but we don't expect that the world is going to look like Jesus is Lord. It also means, this different spheres of authority, what is the role and responsibility of the church? The church is not called to focus on politics. Now, I am called as a pastor to equip you in what God's word says. You are called as a Christian to be an individual good citizen where you live, but the church is not a political entity. The church is not mainly about advocating for politics. Or, that's not what the church is. Jesus didn't say, go into all the world and vote. To go into all the world and make disciples. That's what the church's sphere is. There's different and distinct spheres of authority. And when the church starts to become political, it's lost the focus on what Jesus has given it. The church is called to make disciples, to teach people to obey Jesus, to teach people to know who he is, to walk with him. That's what the church is called. Does that connect to politics? Yes, that's why I'm preaching a sermon on it. But it wouldn't be right of me to preach a sermon and go, all right, here's the policies and the laws and let's all talk about who we're going to vote for. And what, that, that, That's not what the church's job is. It is my job to help you think as a Christian and then for you to go live in the world and do what you are called to do as a citizen. There's a difference between the church collectively and the church organically or the church gathered and the church scattered. Different spheres of authority. <clears throat> Next, Politics are not ultimate. Politics are not ultimate. Now, if you think about this, in, I'll, I'll give you kind of three different ways to think about this, but the main thing that God commands us to do, what is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment, they ask Jesus, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. Second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. That's what you are called to do. That's your greatest command given by God. Not to go vote, not to be involved in politics. Your greatest command by God is love God. And the Great Commission, I already said what it was, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit. That's what your mission is. Your purpose in life according to the Bible, but summarized in the Westminster Catechism, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So your purpose, your command, your mission, none of those things are voting, politics, getting the right people in office. So any time that that overtakes what is ultimate, we've lost the plot. Any time we say, my greatest command is political, we've lost the plot. It's to love God. Anytime we say, my greatest mission, we've lost it. It's to make disciples. Anytime we think about our greatest purpose, no, it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Those are the things that are ultimate. And when we take our eyes off of those, we will replace it with something. 
It might be romance. It might be our career. It might be politics. Part of why I think everything has gotten so political and everything's become political is because when people have taken their eyes off of God, they need some kind of pseudo-religion to replace it. And politics is a great substitute. If you take your eyes off of loving God, glorifying God, his mission to make disciples, it will be replaced. And this is true if you're not a Christian, but it's also true for Christians. I remember one time years ago, I was at a Christian conference, and the speaker talked about, and I won't mention who these people were, but it was a famous speaker, and he talked all about taking America back for God. The room stood up, standing ovation. Then the next speaker uh, was awesome speaker, talked all about evangelism. But one of those definitely has a higher priority in the Bible. One of those is our great commission. One of those is not. I'll let you figure it out. (laughs) So if we take our eyes off what Jesus has said, we replace it with things that are not ultimate. But if loving God, if our mission to make disciples, if glorifying God and enjoying him forever, if those were primary in our heart, how would that affect our politics? It would have a big change. There'd be a lot less fear around things. There'd be a lot more respect and compassion for people of different views. There'd be, there'd be a lot of less concern about all the different things happening. We wouldn't freak out. It would change our approach. It would change our focus and how much priority we give to things. So politics are not ultimate. And yet, at the same time, politics do matter. Politics do matter. Now, my guess is, based on this room, based on my understanding of our church, based on average age range, my guess is most of us don't care that much about politics. Based on being in Denver, Arvada, a lot of us are disillusioned with politics, might just ignore it, might hate it. Maybe some of you have gone through different phases in your life where you really, really cared, and now you don't. I grew up very involved in politics. I grew up when I was in elementary years. I was in a choir that traveled around the state of Washington campaigning for a woman that was running for governor. I had a a vest that was stars and stripes. It looked super sexy. And, um, And our name was the Stars and Stripes, America's Hope. Very humble name. And we campaigned, governor. I was on the mayor's youth advisory council. I was a part of, you can watch a documentary on this on Apple TV if you want. I was a part of Boys State and Boys Nation where they pick two people from every state, send us to D.C. and spend time with the president and senators and all sorts of stuff. I was, I mean, I, I was very politically involved. When I was in college, my dad, if you're listening, sorry, dad, for calling you out, but he hung up the phone with me super mad that I wouldn't run for president, like as my career goals. It's like, I'm going to be a pastor. He's like, you are not, sorry, this is my counseling. He's like, you are not a spiritual leader. You need to be the president and hung up on me. It's like, I'm 18, you know. I was voted most likely to be president at a large high school, so I was very politically involved, okay? And then, contrary to what my dad wanted, I pursued ministry. As I grow in a love for God and the Bible and ministry and understanding, my heart was captured by who Jesus is, captured by 
ministering and helping other people connect to God. And I began to be more disillusioned with politics and see the evil, see the corruption, see things that aren't as they seem. See there's different sides. See about grace and mercy and compassion. And my heart moved far away from politics. Began to ignore it, hate it, throw, I don't, is this legal? I don't even know if I can say this. Threw away tons of ballots, didn't care. Rolled my eyes, and I was wrong. I was wrong. I was selfish because politics do matter. Politics matter. Now, here's a very simple way to just understand that. Last week, we talked about justice. All Christians, if you weren't here, go back, listen to that if you've got a, you know, a weekend. And <laughs> politics, in some sense, are about justice. And all Christians are called to care about justice. We're called to care about promoting the good and restraining evil, which relates to all sorts of issues that are political. Christians are called to care about justice. And politics is one of the key ways that we do that. But also, Christians are called to, very simply, I already read this, so I won't read the whole thing, love our neighbor. And one of the ways that we do that is politics. One of the ways that we do that is vote. One of the ways we do that is be involved and care about how our voice in a democracy influences and affects other people. That's why I say it's selfish, actually. Because we do have a voice. We do have an opportunity to be a part of something. And if we love people as we love ourselves, it's selfish, actually, to say, eh, I don't care. I love the way this book, which is a great kind of introductory level uh, book on politics called Compassion and Conviction, says this about loving your neighbor in politics. He says, we hear a lot of disheartening stories about politics and politicians, but there are also many encouraging stories, stories in which the needy are supported, society is improved because of kind-hearted advocacy and thoughtful policy decisions. Refusing to engage civically is failing to steward the things that God has placed in our sphere of influence. God has placed politics in some measure in your influence. How can we be salt and light if we have no contact with society, especially in an area with such a significant and broad impact on society? Christians should engage politics because doing so provides us with a robust opportunity to love our neighbor by acting justly, promoting human flourishing, and seeking the prosperity of our community. What are you willing to do for the people you love? If a family member was being mistreated, in addition to your prayers, would you also use your time and resources to stop them from being hurt? If they were unjustly imprisoned, would you advocate for them? If a teacher was treating your child unfairly, would you address the issue? Of course you would. We rightly expect that kind of urgent action from the people who say they care about us. And Christians are called to love our neighbors. So because of justice and because of stewarding the influence that God has given us, and because we are called to love the people around us, and because we are called to be salt and light where God has put us, politics do matter. They do matter. Which means be informed about the things happening around you. That takes work, work that I don't want to do. But be informed. Seek to vote. Pray. Maybe some of you are called to take office in smaller or bigger ways? Are you stewarding the influence that God has given you, however big or however small? We are called to love our neighbors. We are called to seek justice. Here's what this also means. Our politics will ultimately come from our values. 
Some people say something like this, you can't legislate morality. That is so stupid. Sorry if you've said that. You're like, I just tweeted that. Sorry. <clears throat> you can't, some people say you can't legislate morality, but all legislation is moral legislation. All legislation is saying we think this is wrong and this is right. We think this promotes good and this, pr and this promotes evil or restrains evil. We think this is just and this is unjust. All legislation has a moral basis to it. So if politics matter because we love our neighbors and it's a way that we work for justice and we steward the influence, it also means all of our political decisions and influence should come and will come from our values. Who gets to say what's just? Who gets to say what's evil that needs to be restrained? Who gets to say what's good that needs to be promoted? Who gets to say what love is for neighbor? So as Christians, this is true for everybody, but as Christians, we have to then say, what does God say is just? What does God say is loving? What does God say is right and wrong? What does God say? As Christians, we have to come to our political decisions that way. Otherwise, we're actually not working for justice. And we're not working for restraining of evil and promoting of good. No matter what, your politics will come from your values. And if you're a Christian, we want our values and our hearts to be shaped by what God says, because Jesus is Lord. We want our values and our promotion of justice and our promotion of good and restraining it to come from what God says. That's what we want. So what is forming you? Is it the news? Is it just popular opinion? Is it specific political pundits? YouTube videos? What's forming your opinions around things? What's forming your promotion of justice and all those things that we've talked? What's forming it? One of the best things you can do as a Christian if you believe that politics matter, is to read your Bible and come to church. Because you, your heart and mind need to be shaped by what God says. Do you love what God loves and hate what God hates? Do you think from a biblical worldview? One of the best things you can do for your kids is shape their worldview around the Bible if they're going to be good citizens. Finally, we need to seek unity in differences. And <clears throat> there's a large part of me that didn't want to preach this sermon because I've already confessed to you my recovering dislike of politics. But if I wanted to preach any part of it, it was this part. Because this is what I've seen in the last few years be most important, most destructive, most helpful to think through. Here's what happens. We, if you're a Christian, we can read the Bible and we can say, okay, I'm called to work for justice. I see what God says is good and what God says is bad. I see that people are made in the image of God. I see the, the way that God presents a vision of reality and I want change. I want to love my neighbor. I, we can all come to the Bible and do that and yet have a different view on how to make that happen, Right? We can all agree in principle with certain things that the Bible says are moral. We can agree that God calls us to be involved, and yet the how of it, we can disagree on. The Bible doesn't lay out all the different specifics of what should tax law look like. I used to live in Oregon. No sales tax. Used to live in Washington. Cross the border into Oregon to buy things, right? 
So does the Bible say, should you have sales tax or no sales tax? Does the Bible say how many Supreme Court justices there should be and how long their terms should be, if they should be for life or two years? Or does the Bible say how long a president's term should be? Does the Bible say... Does the Bible say we should reintroduce wolves to Colorado? This was a few years ago. I remember monitoring this with my kids because we go on a lot of hikes, and we're like, oh, please, don't let the wolves be reintroduced to Colorado. So does the Bible say on those things? Does the Bible tell us exactly what our gun laws should be, exactly what our border laws and immigration laws should be? Does the Bible say if they should put a stupid bike lane in my neighborhood that takes up all the parking spots? Does the Bible say yes on that one? It does. It is not loving to this neighbor. <laughs> so if you have whiteout, come meet me and my street. Does the Bible say? Sorry if you're a biker. Sorry because that's a stupid thing to do. Um, no, I'm just joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm totally joking. <clears throat> I used to have a bike when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> okay. um, the Bible doesn't tell us all those things, right? The Bible doesn't specify all those things. So we can, as Christians, come to the Bible and say, we agree we're supposed to be involved. We agree we're supposed to love our neighbors. We agree even on the things that we're not supposed to murder. We're not supposed to, we agree even on the stuff. There should be justice and there should be care for people in need. We agree. But how? There's a lot of difference. There is a lot of difference, which means that we should expect that the person sitting next to you in the aisle sitting next to you in the row sitting next, we should expect there's going to be differing views. We should expect that to be the case. And not just expect it, but welcome it. We should welcome it, knowing there's not one way. Again, from Jonathan Lehman, I love this little graph that he has, that there's certain biblical theological principles that lead to a straight-line judgment, and in some sense, this should be the whole church believes this. You don't murder, so let's vote for not murdering people. There are certain things that are very clear and very obvious. The Bible says this. Therefore, this is what our position should be. Therefore, this is what, and it doesn't mean like you can't be a member of a church if you don't agree, but this is what our church agrees with and believes. There's certain doctrinal things. There's certain things that I've already preached on, on abortion and certain things that we should just say, this is what the Bible says. This is a straight line judgment. This is what Christians should believe. And there's other things where it's, we don't, there's all sorts of different ways to get to the same thing. All sorts of different ways to think about caring for the needy and ways to think about how taxes, Romans says pay your taxes. What kind of taxes? How much taxes? What do you vote for? Who gets taxed? Who does? All sorts of different judgments. And there should be a lot of Christian freedom that we have in that. To say, you believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. We're both trying to be faithful to Jesus being Lord. That's okay. There's all sorts of things that fall in line like this. Now, this is so important because especially during COVID, and I, and I, I think this is the only time I've ever heard that was kind of those three years that were really heightened around all that stuff. I'm sure in other seasons and other places, people have said things like this. But at least in the history of our church, I'd never heard this kind of stuff until those years where people said, I just want to be around people that think the same way that I think. And I have to tell you, that is wicked. That is not the church and not the gospel. So I understand 
that, yeah, we all want to be around in some way. It's, you know, it's comfortable to be around people that all think the way we think. Sure. But that's not God's vision for the church. Even Jesus' disciples, do you know, by the way, there was Simon the Zealot, which was basically a terrorist that wanted to, like, bomb Rome and, get, and take back Rome, for, take back Jerusalem for the Jews. That was his name. If your name is Caleb the Zealot, like, hi, I'm Caleb the terrorist. Oh, and what do you do? I'm like, well, it's kind of in the name, you know? <laughs> there was him, and then there was Matthew, who was a tax collector for Rome. Now, he probably left that tax collecting profession, but he didn't become Matthew the Zealot. He probably still had his political convictions and personality bent towards certain things. And Jesus said, I want you both to be my disciples. And maybe even put him in bunk beds, you know? And was like, hey, have some fun conversations. <clears throat> we should seek unity in our differences. Some of you have felt the pain of this in your family, relationships, people that won't talk to you, relationships that have broken. Some of you have felt that. I have. And it's hard. And God presents to us a totally different vision. And I want to show you this quick case study, and I will be done, okay? Um, that means I got 30 more minutes. That's what pastors say, okay? So <clears throat> there's a, a quick case study in Romans 14. Again, it's worth reading the whole chapter later. And it's about eating meat or vegetables. There's a debate that was happening in the church. Are we allowed to eat meat? Are we allowed to eat vegetables? And I can't give you all the different contexts of all that stuff, but there's some principles in there where there's some disagreements that people in the same church that are Christians, that love Jesus, that say Jesus is Lord, they're having a debate about some stuff. And Paul writes to them and says, okay, here's how you, here's how you live this out. And he says, welcome anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. Meaning there's jagged line things. There's things that we can disagree on. Don't argue about things that are disputed matters. You want to argue about the Bible and the Trinity and if Jesus is God? Okay, argue. those things matter. But don't argue about disputed matters. It's not worth it. These th Good Christians can have different views on different things. Don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. So Paul has a position. Okay? My kids quote this to me all the time. No. <laughs> Eat your broccoli. One who is weak eats only vegetables. You know? <clears throat> Paul has a position, but he's still saying, look, I understand that there's a dispute, and don't argue about these things. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not judge one who does, because God has accepted him. Don't, so it's not even just don't argue about these things. Your heart shouldn't be in a position where you're looking down on people. Your heart shouldn't be in a position where you think, I'm so much better than them. How could they even have such a stupid position? Haven't they done their research? Haven't they read this thing? Haven't they read the study? Haven't, how, how could they be so dumb? We shouldn't look down on people. It means we should have a charitable heart, to, charitable heart towards people. It, would, it means we should be gracious and understanding of people. If you're not looking down, the opposite of that is, I understand where you're coming from. I might disagree with you, to not look down is, okay, I get it. I understand. This is a totally different heart from, yeah, just be in a vegetable church or just be in a meat church. Don't look down. Don't judge. But you, 
skipping forward a little bit, but you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And then he begins to close Romans 14 after some more stuff around this. But with these principles, he says, so then let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. So you should be actively seeking to build peace with each other. Not disagreement, not argument, not judgment, not disdain, not how could they think this, not separation, but what promotes peace. And then he even says this, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. That is such a wise statement that many of us would do well in the coming year and a half to think about. It doesn't mean you can't ever share your political opinion, but there is a time to just say, you know what, I believe these things, and I don't need to just bark about them to everybody. I believe these things, but you know what matters more than me getting my point across, making sure everyone knows where I stand? You know what matters more? Promoting peace, building people up, unity, love. You know what matters more? That. I can operate in my conscience and believe these things, but I don't have to fight about them. I don't have to seek to, to create. Man, I can't believe that they would think that. I remember, again, during COVID, people on both sides that would say to me, can I, can I come to this church? Such a sad thing to say. Am I going to be welcome in this church since I believe this more liberal-leaning view or this more conservative-leaning view? Man, so sad. Said to both, yes, you can be. But if in our heart the belief is, how stupid, I judge those people, I look down on those people, that tears apart peace, unity, love, and differences. If we are dividing over disputable things, if we feel like we have to convince everybody of our opinion, if we can't fathom how someone could come to a different position, we are wrong. We need to remember God is the judge. That's part of what Paul says. God's the judge. And we need to remember God accepts that person. That's what he tells us. God accepted them. Will you not? God accepts them. God loves them. God cares for them. Will you not? And we need to remember they are a brother and sister. This is my family. The church is a family. Your brothers and sisters. We need to remember those things. Paul bakes all of those ingredients with that stuff in there. Which means we listen, we're humble, we respect, we believe the best about people. Politics can be really confusing. A lot of issues that we've been talking about over the last month can be really confusing. It can be hard to understand, it can be hard to discern, it can be stressful. And there's a lot that we could say and learn more about on all these things, but this helps us begin on all these issues, but today on politics. And as you consider politics, ultimately the reason that it can be so frustrating and the reason that we should be involved in some ways are the same. The reason it's frustrating and the, we sh the reason we should engage are often actually at root the same. Because see, we're frustrated about politics. At least I am. We're frustrated by the corruption, the sin, we're frustrated that the best efforts don't seem to result in things. We're frustrated things don't get done that we think should get done. We're frustrated by the division and the limits. And we long for something better. We long for a better kingdom. 
We long for a better king. And we want to live in his perfect rule, Jesus. And Jesus promises that he will come again. And one day, we won't be frustrated by any politics. We'll all say, Jesus is Lord, and just celebrate it. One day, we won't be frustrated by things not getting done. Jesus' establishment of his kingdom will be full and entire. There won't be any frustration. We'll just get to enjoy it. There won't be any division about Jesus' policies. We'll just get to enjoy the perfect king, the perfect kingdom. We, We long for that, which is part of why now we should actually engage in politics. And the reason that we should love one another in the differences, because we know our real king is Jesus. We want things to reflect that. We want to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we also know that we will receive that one day. When we take communion, which we'll do in just a moment, if you're a Christian, um, if you didn't grab one of those little cups on the way in, be sure to grab one of those. But communion's a time that Christians remember what Jesus did to establish, inaugurate his kingdom. Ephesians says that we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And the way that Jesus did that was through the cross, that he forgives us of our sin, his blood shed to forgive us of our sin, his body broken to make us whole in him. And he transfers us from people that live as a part of one kingdom and the people that are part of his kingdom through his son, through the cross. And so we do get to say, Jesus is Lord, God is Father, the Spirit dwells within me because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So now, we live as a part of that kingdom and we wait and expect for the kingdom to come. So as you take communion, as you pray, bring your heart to God. I I don't know exactly what you should pray. Maybe you need to confess to God where you've been selfish, like I have. Maybe you need to confess to God where... Uh, You've divided and fought with your brothers and sisters. Maybe you need to confess. Maybe you just need to thank God for government and the way he uses it to care for us. You have roads to drive down and there's safety that we can experience. Just thank God for his establishment of something that allows the promotion of good and the restraining of evil. Maybe you just need to thank God for his wisdom and what he's done. And maybe you need to just realign your heart and worship him as the true king and the true Lord. So take some time. We'll respond in a few songs. Take communion when you're ready. And I'll be in the back if anyone would like prayer for anything. Father, I thank you that we belong to you and that you are our true king. You are Lord. We thank you for that. That our hearts can worship and submit and surrender to you without fear. You're not corrupt. You're not limited. You're not out for your own ends. You are perfect in wisdom, in justice, in love, in power. So thank you that you are Lord. Help us as your people to live in this country, in this state, reflecting you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.